So like usual, I'm going to ask you a question, and I want you to really think about this question. What is true power? Start thinking. Is it the ability to exert your will? Maybe the, the fear you can instill. Or it's showcasing your strength, your influence, or it's intimidation. Usually power is thought of in, in some of these ways. Maybe that's what you thought. Imagine with me, you're at a really seedy bar. Maybe you were at one recently, you've been to one, you know one. You think, sorry if this is true for you. The stereotypical trucker's rest stop. Think of a bar at a trucker's rest stop. As luck would have it, you're here, and as usual, there's a tension between a few groups. There are the regulars enjoying their, their daily drafts. A group of bodybuilders on their rest day, or their cheat day, and a couple of martial artists. I know these seem like really strange, but, but stick with me. There's a flippant comment by a regular that really gets on the nerves on one of the guys who's flexing for the camera. He says, well, hey there, hot shot. Naturally, this guy's like, I gotta defend myself, I have honor. He gets up, and a slow jaunt increases his speed as he nears the perpetrator, expands his shoulders a little bit, tries to get as big as possible, huffing and puffing, to send signals of his adrenaline, and then he slugs the guy. Though it knocks out the regular, an all-out brawl commences. There's one form of power. You've got to show it. Next, imagine this flexor had his headphones on. You know those noise-canceling headphones? You can't hear anything else. doesn't hear the comments. So the regular says, okay, I'm not going to get a rise out of this guy. Let me turn my eye to this, this little guy. They look, they look harmless. Just a scrawny group of guys I can pick on with a little bit of fear. Uh, an ear picks up in the group, but their adrenaline doesn't spike. Their heart rate stays calm, but they do get up and they walk towards their irritant, the guy who made the comment. Calmly, without a hint of frustration, the expert fighter, whom you well know, if a jiu-jitsu fighter could beat about just anybody, doesn't matter the size, faces the taunter and says, let me buy you a drink. I'm new and I'm lost. Can you give me some directions? Now let me ask, which one do you think is more powerful? The guy who has it and then exerts it? Or the guy who has it and says, I'm going to hold back? I ask because in John 13, Jesus could have exerted his power right at this moment. When Satan comes up and says, hey, can I enter Judas? He could have said, absolutely not, let's take care of this right now. You could have marched the disciples up the steps of the temple, taken the throne by force. But what does he do? 
He hands Judas the morsel of bread and says, go do it. Do your best. I'm going to use that for your redemption. I'm going to use that for all my people's redemption. But why? At the end of John 12, Jesus receives unbelief. Really, the greatest sermon you can possibly preach. Nobody trusts him. Nobody believes him. After his triumphal entry, remember, what's the beginning of John 12? That's all the people receiving him as king. You're a king, you're a lord. And then he preaches them and they say, never mind. That's not really, I'm not really, I'm not really about that. I don't really want that. You see, he could have come in power. He could have come, you can say, by force. But he comes in service. He comes to serve. We're going to see this in three points. The first is the sovereignty of Jesus. Verses 1 through 11. You see your sin, like here with, with Satan coming in and indwelling Judas, this doesn't, caught, this doesn't catch God off guard as if he says, what am I going to do now? Satan now wants to take Judas. What am I going to do now? It needs to be cleansed. And second is the servanthood of Jesus, verses 12 through 20. He doesn't just leave you in your sin. He cleans your sin, and he takes it upon himself. Literally, he's using his towel wrapped around him to clean the disciples. And lastly, the sacrifice of Jesus, verses 21 through 30. Part of Jesus' obedience is being treated as a sinner. He did not sin, but he's treated as one who sinned, that he might credit to you his righteousness. And he shows this through his servanthood. He came as subjects so that he could serve you. And may this come clear throughout. Jesus served by being portrayed, betrayed, that you might be welcomed and pure. So let's begin. Point one is sovereignty, verses 1 through 11. You remember back, this is a few weeks ago. Remember how chapter 12 began? It says six days before the Passover. And now at the beginning of chapter 13, we're probably the night before or somewhere on the same day. So it's taken a chapter, about five days, and then from chapter 13 through 20 is like one ish night, depending on how you count this one night slash an afternoon. After 12 chapters of just zooming through, he stops for about a, for eight chapters over one day. This is pretty important. Notice the end of verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the ends. You can call this Christ's act of obedience. He did what he was supposed to do so that he could save you. And he came into this world not to glorify himself, not to establish his power first, although he does that in the second coming. His first coming is to love you. And he says, I will do everything necessary to make sure you get that credit. And he says, I have loved them to the end. He's saying, I have loved you to the end. I've done everything necessary for you to be loved by me. 
And verse 2 is the last reference to the devil in the entire Gospel of John. And nowhere is the devil active, really, in the sense that he actually exerts force. It's only ever in response to Jesus or allowed by Jesus. What is Jesus doing here? He knows the devil has placed betrayal into the heart of Judas. So you might have asked yourself before, why doesn't he just stop him? He knows exactly what's going to happen. Why doesn't he just take Judas and say, you're not going to do this? Or take it to Satan. Satan says, I'm going to crush you right now. Why not just stop it? Why let everything else go through? Same with any evil that you've ever encountered. Why can't you just stop this? Why do you let me go through this? You'll learn soon, the devil, whenever he tempts, and this is going to sound odd at first, but let me explain. He's permitted. He doesn't just exert, he's allowed to. He doesn't work on his own. It's not him versus Jesus, him versus God. Jesus says, yes, you can. That's how evil comes in. Not because Jesus did it, but because he allows it and uses it. And notice what falls after. How would you respond if you knew Satan entered into your friend? You would probably like go for him at that moment, saying, heck no, you're not going to do that. You're not going to take my friend. But what does Jesus, how does he respond? What's the first thing that comes? Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. Satan, you can do whatever you want. That authority is mine. I allow you to do this stuff. Almost as if to say, do your best, Satan, but I have the authority. You think you have authority. I have the authority. The authority our first parents, Adam and Eve, were told to have. Have dominion over this whole land. I am giving you this power. I'm giving you this right. Don't mess it up. And then Jesus says, I got that authority. I did it right. I obeyed. I earned that authority. And now it's given to me. He grasped the serpent's not by force, he actually kills the serpents by being betrayed by the serpents. He wins, you can say, by losing. He says to the serpent, you think you got me, but you didn't. And instead of taking himself a sword and casting the devil out from Judas, which is what Peter does in John 17 and John 18, it's like, you're not going to take my Lord. Let me cut off your ear. Let me start a war. He serves. Early in chapter 12, he is proclaimed the king of David, the rightful heir to the throne, the messianic deliverer, the one who's going to take your sins away. And he says, I will establish my kingdom by serving you. Not by sitting on top of some throne just to be served by you, but I will serve you. 
Well, what does he wash? Maybe like a nice chalice, a cool throne, a seat for him to stand on. He washes their feet. The king from John 12, the anointed deliverer, washes disgusting feet. My wife thinks my feet are bad. Maybe your feet are pretty bad too. They're nothing compared to a first century Palestinians who either didn't have shoes or had little leather sandals that didn't cover the entire shoe. Those feet are disgusting. Even I think they're bad. And my feet are pretty bad. But there's more. You remember the promise in Genesis 3? He shall strike your head, as God talking to the serpents about the woman, her seed. He shall strike your head, and you shall bruise his what? His heel. There's a little play here. A tremendous and utterly unexpected act of service by the king of creation, ruler of all things, who is the serpent striker with his heel. I'm going to wash your feet because my foot has crushed. He washes the feet of those who will tread over the defeated serpent. He's not saying you have to defeat it. I've defeated it. Therefore, you have a servant's feet. You have cleansed feet. And can I say, you may not notice this is first, but you should love verse 6. It's going to sound odd. Because notice what he calls Peter. Usually he just calls him Peter. But he asks Simon Peter. Lack of a better way, who else is called Simon in this entire passage? Or son of Simon? That's Judas. It's a similar ring to Judas Simon Iscariot, because guess what? Both Peter and Judas betray Jesus. Judas betrays Jesus by giving away from a kiss to the Roman authorities. Peter says, I will never leave you, and then denies him three times. We always put all the blame on Judas, and he deserves his blame. But Peter denies him to his face three times. But then Peter is an idealist. He rebukes Jesus. Lord, you're the king of Israel. We just watched that ceremony five days ago. You're anointed king. You're anointed Messiah. They, they, they crowned you, and you took it. You didn't say, no, that's not for me. That's for another. You took it. Says, get up, let's go. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's take this. We're so close. Everyone's there. Everyone's going to see this. You can hear in his, his, his voice is, I don't need cleansing. I need war. I need victory. What a beautiful response by Jesus in verse 7. He doesn't mock Peter, he doesn't rebuke Peter. He just tells him, you'll figure it out soon. Doesn't make sense now, but you'll figure it out. 
<laughs> says again, you'll never wash my feet. You can see, like, almost feel Jesus like, are you really kidding me? You're not getting this? You can almost hear Peter saying, Lord, servanthood is below you. How dare you, the Lord King, serve me, your servants? You can't possibly be a servant. You're a king. Go and take what's yours. I'm sure we're adding a few words, but he doesn't sound that different from the serpent in the garden. Go take what's yours. God's holding back from you. You can take this. You can do this. But this washing is not merely physical. It's a metaphor. It's a true metaphor. This cleansing is not just the external body of dirt, but the soul of sin. The word for for cleaning, cleansing, washing, here and then a few verses later, it's, it's the same word used in Leviticus. When the priests take the animal sacrifices, cleanse them, wash their clothes, and then present them on the altar. Present them before God as a, as a pleasing aroma, a pleasing sacrifice, to be cleansed. Now, however, there's, there's no indication that Judas's feet weren't washed. He's probably washed too. The serpent hasn't fully answered yet. That doesn't come until the end of John 13. Just like the author of Hebrews says, it's not the sacrifice itself that cleanses. If faith in the animal or the thing cleansed is the thing that saves you, but it's the substance of the sacrifice that saves you. Judas receives a sign, he hears, he communes, he tastes, but he doesn't have the substance. He doesn't have Christ. How does Jesus save you if he's not establishing his rightful authority, if it doesn't look like he's saving you, if it doesn't look like things are going well, if it looks like in anything, if everything's going opposite of how you thought it would go, how is Jesus saving you? How is Jesus making things right? This brings us to point two, servant. There's something so simple and yet so profound in Jesus' action of cleaning the feet of his disciples. He takes a towel, wrapped around him, uses himself to clean what's unclean. They can't walk into the temple like that. Priests who clean something else are then themselves unclean. Usually, cleanness is marred by uncleanness. But here, Jesus' cleanness makes uncleanness clean. He doesn't get dirty. He only makes clean. It's a picture of Jesus cleaning you himself. Because he doesn't tell the disciples, hey, you guys wash up each other. You wash him, you wash him. He says, I'll wash you. Saying, you can't do this yourself. You can't cleanse yourself. 
You can't look at your dirt and say, I'm going to wash that, because all you can wash it with is just more dirt. It'll just get dirtier and dirtier, seep into your skin. He says, I can make you clean. He's been called teacher. Remember Nicodemus in John 3. He says, teacher. Mockingly so, he calls him teacher. And Lord, he's called that throughout the Gospels, but Lord can be both honorific, like a mister. He can also be Lord, as in Yahweh. And he's called that throughout his Gospel. But now he's, he's teaching his disciples that he is in fact the Lord. Lord over all things. And he's saying, now that I've done this for you, now you do the same. You don't imitate Jesus to gain grounds. This is not him saying, okay, if you want to be like me, if you want to kind of invite me into your hearts, you've got to go serve others. If you want to be, feel better about yourself, you have to go serve others. He's saying, you serve others because I've served you. You clean others because I've cleansed you. Christianity, it's not a religion of imitation. Strictly speaking, it's not even a religion of morals. It's a religion of salvation. I have saved you. Those things come after, but that's not the essence. It's the saving word. It is Jesus paying the penalty you cannot pay for your sins against God's holy law, and then Jesus is crediting his righteousness to you under that same exact law. It does lead to moral lives. Absolutely. But a moral life is not the essence of a Christian. You can have a moral atheist. You can have a moral Hindu. You can have a moral pagan, a moral Buddhist, a moral Mormon. But they're not saved. Also, what does Jesus say in verse 15? That you should do as I have done to you. But who does he do this to? Who does he cleanse? Who does he wash the feet of? Is it only the disciples whom he has saved? It's everyone. Judas is cleansed. Eleven disciples are cleansed. Peter, who in 24 hours is going to betray him. He cleans all of them. Jesus washes the feet of two betrayers. Knowing you're about to betray me, he goes, stoops down, goes to their feet, and washes them. He says, to you, go and do likewise. It's not distinguishing. You do this to all. Because you in this passage, me in this passage, are Judas, are Peter. We're the disciples. Your sin has qualified you, congratulations, as a betrayer. You betrayed God's law. You have transgressed his law. You've chosen everything but Jesus at every turn. You and I are no better than Judas. We don't look at Judas and say, well, that's him. I'm a little better. We're all under that roof. Every single one of us. Then you get to the key to Jesus' servanthood and obedience in verses 16 to 17. 
because that's where the good news lies. He's not describing hierarchy. He's not saying the Father is greater than me, the fancy term ontologically. Not in himself he's greater than me. For the Bible, summarized by the creeds and confessions, we have to get these right. For the Reformed Church and the Church throughout the ages has confused, or has, we've confused that the Father and the Son are the same divine essence. They're distinct persons, and they come back and they show us they're the same of divine essence, distinct persons. What makes him lower is his humanity. Not his sonship. You distinguish, but you don't separate. He serves the Father through obedience to the law. That's him serving. He's made himself below the Father according to his humanity. And at the same time, he's of the same divine essence, the Son as the Father. We have to distinguish but you don't separate. Because here he's speaking of his servitude as the incarnate son, not as the eternal son, not as the eternal second person of the Godhead, but as the incarnate person who's under the law. This, this verse has been confused in all sorts of ways. For if you do these things, it's because you are blessed by the Son who served on your behalf. And in verses 18 to 20, Jesus quotes from the end of Psalm 41. He who ate my bread has lifted its heel against me. This is originally penned by David concerning both his son Absalom who leads a coup, just trying to take over the throne from David, and Absalom's henchmen. They're all trying to take over the throne from David. So David originally writes this, saying, my son and his friends are lifting their heel up against me. And then Jesus places these on his lips. So not only is Jesus the servants, which that should remind you, of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 to 55 are what we call the servant songs. All these things someone who's coming will do to serve Israel on their behalf. And he adds that to David the king. He says, yes, I am the king and I'm the servant. Not against each other. And yes, I'm the servants, but I also rule all things. Both of these. Immediately following this reference, you have the triumphant. So this is Psalm 41.9 is a reference. And then everything after Psalm 41.9 is all praise. Everything from Psalm 1 to 9 is really all laments. And then at 9, it switches to praise. It says, but you, O Lord, this is the next verse after Psalm 41.9. Be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay him. Which is exactly what happens with Jesus. Betrayed and then rose. Betrayed and then glorified. 
Evil is evil. Suffering is suffering. You don't downplay them. You want to you dig into them. They, they are what they are. Christianity doesn't kind of cover over them with a joyful veneer. It says they actually are hard. They're really hard. But they're not outside of God's sovereignty. They're not outside of God's control. Because the ultimate betrayal, the ultimate sign of evil, which you and I played a part in, we were glad to play a part in this, is used by the Lord to send the Son, the true servants, to his death as a sacrifice that he might raise the very ones who betrayed him to life. This brings us to our last point, sacrifice. As you heard in John 12, and it's, it's worth stressing again, the God-man is truly God and man. Notice what he says, beginning of verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit. It's not just kind of a staunch attitude towards it, no emotions, just going through the motions, because that wouldn't make sense to us. That's not taking the fullness of the human condition. That's not Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2 says he has all sufferings like you and I do. He understands what you and I go through. It's not just him kind of being worrying about what's happening. He's crucifixion is not fun. You've read about it. It's not fun. You can't look at it and say, like, yeah, I'm excited to, to be tortured for six or seven hours to be raised up on a cross. I know what I'm doing it for. Doesn't mean he's excited. His disciples, ignorant as usual as what's really going on, look at themselves, and they're just like, what do you know? I don't know. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know where he's going. You can almost hear the inner dialogue. They're saying, we've been around this guy for three years. Your guess is as good as mine. I have no idea what he's going to do. I have no idea what he's talking about. They're, they're just as confused as everyone else Jesus has talked to in the gospel. And so John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is reclining upon Jesus at the feast. He's, he's poked by Peter. Peter looks at him and is like, you're really close to Jesus. Maybe you know Jesus' talk. Maybe what he says makes sense to you. Maybe you can tell us. Give us, give us a clue. Maybe Jesus pulled you over on the side and told you what he's going to do. Maybe you get it better than we do. But how does, how does Jesus respond? Not how the disciples would have liked. They would have liked uh, Jesus to say, Yeah, Judas. Judas is the guy. Judas is going to betray me. Go get him. Because they probably would have got him. They probably would have held Judas by the collar and killed him. If Jesus had told them, yes, it was Judas. But like he hides his divine identity for 12 chapters, he hides his crucifixion. He hides it from them because he knows what they're going to do. You're going to try to take it by force. I need to serve. I need to be sacrificed. 
Right, the loop is closed from verse 2. Because remember verse 2, Satan had gone into Judas, but now we actually get how he came into Judas. In verses 28 and onwards. Verses 27 and onwards. But who actually makes the decision? Is it Satan just kind of trotting over to Judas and says, I'm going to take you over? Jesus takes the morsel of bread and says, Satan, now you can enter. Satan, it's your turn. Jesus allows him because he knows what he's using it for. He knows this leads to the cross. He knows this leads to crucifixion. He knows this leads to his death and to his resurrection. This is really similar to Job. What happens with Job? Satan's actually not the one who goes up to Job or goes up to God and says, hey, I like to tempt Job. God tells Satan, hey, have you ever considered this guy Job? Pretty righteous guy. Why don't you test him? Pretty righteous guy. Why don't you, why don't you shake him up? He's not doing it just to, just to shake us up. He's doing this because he's going to use this to save you. He's going to use the devil's plan, which he's allowing, to save you. So the disciples in verses 28 to 29 assume Judas is, is getting food for the poor as he was the treasurer of the group. And so in one sense... They're dead wrong. They still have no idea what he's going to do. But another, you can say they're spot on. Because he's going to feed the poor. And who are the poor? Those who are poor in spirit. Those who are poor in righteousness. Those who are saying, I don't deserve a seat at the table. I don't deserve this redemption. I don't deserve what Jesus is about to do. He does go out and say, come in. I've purchased this for you. This is yours. He did purchase what you cannot afford. Because you are truly poor of spirit. You lack all righteousness. And that's why he says, I will buy that righteousness through my obedience. And I will give it to you. I will buy it, and I'll give it to you freely. And so Judas goes off into the night, and Jesus is not far behind. Because Jesus will experience the dark. On the cross, he experiences three to six hours, depending on how you interpret it, of darkness. And not just physical darkness, if all the lights turned off but darkness from the Father, and saying, I am treating you as a sinner. You who have never sinned, I am treating you as if you had sinned. Darkness from my face. No blessings on you. Cast out from my sight. And that's so you and I can walk in the light. He's in the darkness. He experiences darker darkness than you will ever experience. And he does that so that you can walk in the light. Jesus, sovereign over all, sovereign over Satan. 
sovereign over the devil, who allows the devil to work, gives him the morsel of bread, says, do your worst. I'm going to use that against you. I'm going to win my redemption for my people. Serve the Father by obeying on your behalf that he might be the perfect sacrifice. The servants who was just anointed as king serves you and gives you his righteousness. Just like he cleans the disciples' feet saying, I'm the ultimate serpent crusher. I crush. And now you get the benefits. And now you get to be cleansed. He willingly and joyfully took on the darkness of sin that you might enter into the light of his countenance. That's what you as a Christian get. Let's pray. Lord, you've done all these things for us. You came as a servant. You who created all things. You who have rightful kingship and rulership over all things. Who could have wiped out with an entire army legions of animal or of, of angels. You came, you lived, and were betrayed, and died for us, so that you might rise with us. You are not a king who expects to be served. You're a king who serves us, and that we get to serve you. We love serving you. We enjoy serving you, because you first loved us, and you first served us. We thank you and we praise you all this in your son's name. Amen.